You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. So I know you guys would never guess this about me, uh, but I did spend a summer or two in the thespian life in the theater in high school musical plays. Do you think I was any good? I tried my best. Effort's what counts, I guess. Uh, it was after Kyra had left. She had gone out of town uh, to move to Greenville. I was still in South Bend, Indiana at the time. And basketball was over, and tennis was over, and I didn't really have anything to do with my time, so I decided to jo- join Fiddler on the Roof. And in the high school musical, at least in my school, they didn't turn you down. So it was a wide open door. There's no tryout. You just show up, and if you're a warm body. And uh, I played... Uh, some love interest, I can't remember his name. I was one of the husbands. And I was also like a drunken Russian dancer <laughs> at some wedding. And I had this like Velcro little bottle in my head and I was supposed to dance. And I kind of caught the theater bug. It was, was kind of fun. Didn't have a lot of lines, didn't have to try out. Tevye is like in every scene. Anybody here play Tevye or seen Tevye? He talks just nonstop. He has so many lines. Ashley G. Seddon, Parham was his name. He did a fantastic job. And so that summer I decided to just keep up with the momentum, just see where this thing would go. Who knows? Maybe I'll become famous. Had a great enough time doing the Russian dance. So I decided to try out for The King and I in the civic play down in South Bend, Indiana. And I thought, hey, I'm Asian. I probably got half these guys waxed. Might get some lines in this one. So I put on my MC Hammer pants and did as many pushes as I could not to look like a total embarrassment in the middle of this King and I thing. And I was a love interest again. His name was Loon Ta, and he sang a song called uh, I Dream a Dream. And it hit all the way up to high G. Anybody know high G? I, it's, it's a high one, I'll tell you that. And so uh, this was my great moment. It was like a civic play. It wasn't just a little kitty play. There was adults involved. It was a real thing. And uh, opening night, mom's out there. And I mean, it was probably 4,000 people. It was like this big amphitheater. It was outside. And I'm singing in the key of G. And your boy can sing some Dave Matthews songs, but I do not sing in the key of G with this wonderful lady named Maggie, and she was, like, trained, and she could sing classically and all this stuff. And there's even this, like, stage kiss and everything, and it was just a bad situation. It was just awkward in a lot of different ways. <laughs> so I ramped myself up to it, because, you know, singers, the more tight that your body gets, that's probably the better that you're going to sing. And I go to hit this really high note on one knee, nonetheless. And it was one of these things where, because of the stage lighting and just my point of view and my sight line, I hadn't caught the message that like everyone else had caught, which was that it was raining outside. And it was so literally bright on these lights that I couldn't see the crowd. And everyone was like kind of getting up and evacuating. And so as I'm there, I didn't get the message. The crowd got the message. The director got the message. Apparently the stagehand got the message. The rest of the cast got the message. Your boy on the high G did not catch the message. I was down on Wendy and guys, that curtain that hit me, it swung all the way across I've noticed all the other like chorus people like barrel off. This is in my big solo moment. I'm singing like this. And this probably 100-pound curtain just came and scraped all over my back, right? In which case, you know, there's fight or flight, and you, wanna, you wish you want to have that knee-jerk reaction, like the right reaction when crises like that happen. I oftentimes have the wrong reaction. And so as I sang down on one knee, everyone else went in, and I rolled outwards, okay? So that was the wrong decision. The spotlight hit me in my MC Hammer pants and my eight-year-old body, and everybody starts cracking up laughing, and I just ran off the stage, you know, like Tom and Jerry. And so that was my, that was my whole career, whole career in the, th- in the theater. 
I gave up a lot, guys, to do that, you know, my pride, you know, um, my friends, like I didn't really, really have any, any friends in there, Kyra wasn't there, I don't, I, nobody got paid, we weren't getting paid, it was just a, a silly way to spend the summer, um, but there was something powerful about it, because unlike the fiddle on the roof thing, I had an audition and I got the part. And uh, there's something uh, powerful, just in human nature, about being selected, there's something like that makes you feel good, you know, Matt, like when you get the call and I say, Matt, there's a thousand people in the sweepstakes, but you want a leg lamp. Like there's something that's so exciting about the fact, well, out of the thousand people, 999 of them did not get picked to get this leg lamp. And so now this is a great moment, right? There's something to, you know, when you're in a job and you don't really like the job and you want to leave the job you know that there's like a whole long line of people that would take your job if you got up and left that would sort of make you stay longer than you should because you got chosen for the job and I don't want to let somebody else get chosen. I like to feel chosen. I like to feel better. I like to feel like I'm special. You know, that's the idea. And as much as you roll your eyes at the people with the whole like honors uh, student thing on the back of their minivan, when you get that sticker and it says your kid is an honors student, there's something about your head that just gets a little bit bigger and your baseball hat doesn't fit anymore, and your nose goes straight up like this, and you have to put it on the back because it's only great because your kid didn't get chosen that my kid got chosen. So there's something special, right, about being chosen. And uh, so we're reading, you know, these scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, and um, it's like Indigo Montoya, you know? You're reading that word chosen, and there's these words that go through your mind, and you're reading it in Romans 1 and Romans 9, and you're reading it in Abraham, and you're reading it in Peter and John and all that kind of stuff. And the Bible's going, I don't think you mean what you think that it, I don't think that word means what you think that it means, you know? Like, like when we read, read the word chosen, we can, because of our just human nature and, and self-centeredness, think that chosenness uh, is about me being better, right? Isn't that how, how it goes? Like, chosen, what does that mean? It means first or lasted longer than everybody else or smarter or, you know, like that's what chosen means. But if we really allow the Scripture to interpret Scripture, what the Bible's saying is chosen doesn't mean better, it just means blessed. Like, you go and read, like, the chosenness of the disciples, like, they're not better. They just happened to be at the right place at the right time, apparently, and they were dumb enough to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, your chosenness might actually, your chosenness by Jesus might actually be a demeriting factor more than a meriting factor, because if you look at the people that are chosen, they're never very bright, they're never very picked. They're never very first. They're never very last the longest. They're just the available ones, you know? You look at Abraham and his chosenness. His chosenness was never about being better. It was always about being blessed. It was like, yeah, you're chosen to be the few, but the few is not to abstract from the many. It's to go towards and to bless the many, Abraham, that there's more Abrahams on the way. And so your chosenness today is not so that you can be the few, but that you can bless the many. And similarly with Moses, basically, in this room, that chosenness is not just about finding a home in Christ, it's about getting a job. Chosenness means we've been selected for a specific service to bless others. So chosenness is not about, biblically speaking, being better, it's about being blessed. Why? I have no idea why. All I know is that this rabbi came along my path and he called my name, and it wasn't because I was better or smarter or sing better or lasted longer or more strong or more endurant. He just decided to bless the few to bless the many through faith. So you remember the promise from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, this is how it all gets started. The first 
chosenness, like the chosen line in Abraham. Sounds like this. The Lord says to Abraham, hey, hey, buddy, I've never seen your resume. Don't really care where you've been, where you come from. Like, I just pick you. You're it. Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to land I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. You didn't pay for it. You didn't earn it. I'm just going to bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Great promise. Vague plan. Right? Not a lot of detail to the plan. But there's a promise, and there's a selection. There's a choice. So we've been reading through Romans 9 through 11. Thanks for bearing with me. Highly dense theological passage here, right, where Peter says that sometimes our brother Paul is a little bit difficult to understand. So I blame Paul these last two sermons. Uh, gets more practical in the, in the next chapter, in chapter 12. <clears throat> but Paul basically gives us a peek behind the curtain. He calls it a mystery. That he actually is going to give us a little more insight into the promise and get into the strategy and the plan. And it's a plan that none of us would have picked. It's a plan that none of us would have picked. And that's why God's God. I mean, are you guys thankful that our God is a planner that doesn't abide by our plans? That he's insistent and picky and stubborn about his plans over our plans. That's a good thing. That's a good thing that he's sovereign and he makes our plans. And so here, you guys ready? This is the plan. I wouldn't have made this plan. This is God's plan. That's how it goes. So he chooses Abraham, even though his wife is barren, and they have a bajillion kids. Fast forward to the story. Christ comes, and here's the irony. The ones that are chosen reject the Jesus that chose him. This was all part of the plan. Phase one, Christ comes and hardens the Jews' hearts so they stumble over the gospel. This was all part of the plan. This is what, this is what Paul's saying. This is the argument. And this was all in view of phase two, which is the unpicked, the unchosen, the uncovenanted people actually don't stumble over what the covenanted people stumble over. And while the Jews reject, the Gentiles accept. What a crazy plan. He picked the people to basically unpick themselves somehow in this sense of Christ to stumble over the gospel to humble the Gentiles. Their stumbling led to the Gentiles humbling. But, but this is the crazy thing. It's not just that phase one happens. Like phase one is happening so that phase two can happen. Listen, so there's a whole other. And the third phase is so that the humbleness of the Gentiles would cause jealousy of the Jews to humble the Jews. Who would have thought of that plan? That's the most convoluted extra step. Just what, what's the new math that everyone's trying to get us to do? And, and Common core math type of thing I've ever heard of, right? Why do you do three phases that you just bless them all at the same time? He doesn't want to do it that way. Okay, so it's called a mystery. I have a little theory, though. Here's why I think. I think the reason why this is the plan that God chooses is because God is interested in building a family that is based on faith and not works. So I had a, a mentor in youth group, a youth pastor guy. He's older, older generation, Rich Hodge. And uh, I got going with the old uh, youth group, and he says, I'll, he says, I'll tell you some advice that's worth a thousand bucks. When you go start a youth group, don't aim it at the cool kids. It was a good one. He said, a lot of times, it's going to be tempting, because the cool kids and the popular kids are very influential. And so the strategy for a lot of youth groups will just go get the quarterback. You go get the quarterback, and all the kids are going to follow. You know, that's the idea. It's like, go find influential people, get them influential, and then influence them for Christ, right? He's like, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. He's just like, 
there's, there's, there's a better strategy that I found. This is just him, not talking from the Bible, just his experience. He says, what you want to do is just pick the people that are available. People that could be cool or uncool, it doesn't matter. Don't pick them based on their influence. Pick them on availability. And when you do that, you send a message and create a culture that's based on Christ, not cool. And here's the goal. The goal is not because you don't like cool people. The goal is, is if you aim at cool people, you'll get the click. But if you aim at available people, you get everyone. So don't go for the cool people. I think that's what's going on here. Because if you remember, right, the theology is not separate from the application. Our journey towards heaven is the same path and journey towards family, which is the same vehicle, which is faith. And remember, the opposite of faith is actually not doubt. The exact opposite is not doubt. The exact opposite of faith is not even sin. The exact opposite of faith is not fear. The exact opposite of faith, according to Paul, is works. The opposite of faith is I do it. So the interpretation this whole time is that the gospel is not talk, it's power. It's not a theological construct that some people get right and some people get wrong. It is a power that softens the heart of somebody's soil, sometimes through stumbling and sometimes through humbling, that all people might turn to trust Christ for salvation. And so he's, I, I believe through this, this path, this plan, that he's building a family that's based on faith and that works. What else is he doing by choosing the Jews to choose the Gentiles, to choose the Jews back again, except to say, y'all don't do this, I do. This isn't about being a Jew or a Gentile or cool or Asian or Republican or Democrat. This is about being a sinner saved by Jesus who's on the bus. Anyone that's available can be the few for the many. And so I think as we take this theology home to our living rooms and out of just the classroom, it would work on us in such a way that it would build us as a family of faith instead of works. I think the three points I'd want to point out today is that the family of faith is not like the world because it's not impressed by popularity. It's not impressed by numbers. It's not impressed by the majority rule. It's impressed by faith in Jesus, rather the faithfulness of Jesus. Like I'm trusting him to get me to heaven as much as I'm trusting him to get me into a family because both of them are impossible. Secondly, a family that's based on faith instead of works realizes that God is sovereign over hearts. And even the stumbling that I do and the stumbling that you do within the sovereignty of Jesus is causing all of our humbling. And there's no losing in Jesus and only winning. And just as much as neither height, death, angels, nor demons could separate me from the love of Christ in him, it can't separate, it can't separate us either. That Jesus, his power and his death and resurrection in our midst is causing even our stumbling to cause humbling. That a hard heart is actually in Christ's hands somehow miraculously ready to become soft again. He's hardening hearts to show us what it's like without him that we might trust in him and not in ourselves because the opposite of faith is actually not doubt. It's works. A family of faith that's not built on works comes to this sobering reality, man. The olive tree picture we'll read in a moment. This place was here before I got here, and it's going to be out here after I'm gone. This is not my church. This is his church. Paul would say, consider the kindness and the sternness of God. Don't be arrogant, but be humble and recognize that as much as he is bringing the kingdom of heaven for all that would have belief and faith, he's bringing the family of God through the same exact avenue. So, 11.1, I ask them, Paul, this is his key question. The point of this question in this context, towards this author and audience, is God's character. If he made a promise that he doesn't fulfill, he's not worthy of trust. So that's what's on the stand. Did God make a promise to Abraham that he didn't fulfill in his plan? 
No, by no means. He says, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, and God didn't reject me. He didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. And don't you know, this is what Scripture's been saying all along. Like, y'all, the Scripture is not errant. You're just blind. You don't want to read it, right? Because Scripture's been telling you. Remember, think about this, Elijah. Remember the prophet? He was tired and hungry. And some of us, you know, us prophets out here, just need a nap and a sandwich and just get it reset for a second, right? Because he's out here having a real pity party, and he meets God out there because God's right where you turn around. And so he appeals to God against Israel. You know the prophet. I do it right. They do it wrong, blah, blah, blah. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. Anyone feel like they're the only one left? The only one left from their family? I'm the only one that cares around here. I'm the only one that prays. I'm the only one that serves around here, right? Eat a sandwich, take a nap. You'll be good, okay? <laughs> they're trying to kill me. What did God answer him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there was a remnant. That's what Paul wants you to know. This is the strategy to the plan has always been the same. It's not been the many to bless the few. It's been the few to bless the many. That's how this works, because otherwise it'd be based on works, not faith. It's a remnant thing. And they've been chosen by grace. This is the Jews he's speaking about. Verse six, and if by grace... It's done that way, then it can't be based on works, and if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then, he says, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain, the elect among them, the special ones, the chosen ones, the elect among them, they were hardened. Yep, just that it was already, it was already written in Deuteronomy, in Isaiah. God came over their uh, spirit of stupor, they had eyes, but you know what? They weren't working, and they had ears, and they weren't really listening, and on that very day when Christ came, they stumbled. And then David said it too, verse 9. So many examples. Verse 9, uh, and David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. This has been from the beginning. The point was never to choose the many to bless the few. It was to bless the few to bless the many. And he gives three different examples. I mean, he's like, look, if I'm the Saddam Hussein of the church and I got changed into Billy Graham, you think there's a heart that I can't change? Like, you think I'm impressed? By majorities and minorities, I can change whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want, because I'm God, and you're not. And I'll knock him straight off his horse and have him preach crusades if I want Saddam Hussein to do that. Remember this, right? He's like, remember me. You remember Elijah? There's a little prophet over here by himself. He didn't even have a small group. God changed a small group into a mega church off of a whining pastor. Like, that's all that it took. He's like, I'm not impressed by numbers. I'm impressed by what? By faith. I remember before we had any cool coffee around here in Greenville, there's only two Starbucks. And uh, old Will Shirts from Methodical, he had a little booth down there, a little cutout uh, on Main Street where he like sold cafe and creme. He sold like good coffee. It was like roasted here and everything. And this was before, y'all can't even imagine this because we're gurus all of a sudden, you know, with coffee. What is he saying? He's like, hey man, if I can make one coffee shop, who's to say there isn't more where that came from? The first fruit idea that they're going to bring up and the root idea, the image he's going to bring up is like, it's like it only takes an acorn to make an oak tree. Like all it takes is the faith. I'm not looking for the numbers. I'm looking for the faith. I remember when I came a Christian in 2002, it was right around the time, maybe it was just when I got baptized by that uh, theater curtain over my back that I snapped out of it. I don't know. Got knocked off my high horse. Um, there's only two Christians on my Chinese side, me and Uncle Peter, Uncle Pedro. Uncle Peter's, Uncle Peter's blind. Made a bunch of money working at Microsoft, made a bunch of programs, and spent his time in ministry uh, with orphans in prayer. 
Oliver, we're going to have a prayer meeting. He would say, Auntie Rose, Haile, Chaos was there, Popo, got the whole family in the living room. I'm like, y'all going to pray without Christians around? He's like, yeah, we're going to pray. We're going to have a prayer meeting. And he'd bring it up. He'd bring up things from cancer and, and school and just concerns. He'd just pray. He'd just pray. I remember this one time my mom was there, and it just, like, struck me. I don't know if he did it on purpose or what he was. I, I think he was probably smarter. He always came off as that very more aloof kind of Colombo uh, missionary person. Um, but he was singing this song. I mean, and with all these people, some believe in Christ and not, some not. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, which is just funny to me because he's like, but I'm spiritually can see. So I don't know if he was like trying to like get into you on that. As of today, I counted out of 21 people on my uncle's and cousin's side, we went from two and now there's eight Christians on my dad's side with a lot of people that are open to going to church and going to seek the Lord. And, and God didn't do that through a majority. He did it through faith. He did it through faith. And so this is what work says. Work says, but Lord, there's not enough people. There's so many diapers to change. Oh my gosh, there's not enough people. There's not enough people to volunteer. There's not enough people to get the parking. There's not enough people to go to the nations. He's like, I told you that there's going to be not enough workers. Look to the Lord of the harvest. I'm the majority, right? This is what this is about. This is not about me teaching the minority. It's blessing, teaching the majority. It's blessing the minority to go give to the majority, the few to the many. I'm looking for faith, I'm looking for prayer, I'm looking, for, and we, we, we despise the simple things, we think that they're so small, but to God, they're everything. They're the mustard seed. The mustard tree can't grow without the seed, and that's what God looks at, and so listen, this, the idea is like, is, is, is when, he, when his eyes scan, right, the health of a church, he's not looking at these majority numbers and big Sundays and programs and budgets, he's looking at faith, that's what he's looking for, is there faith in this room? It's like, yeah, like faith for heaven and the gospel, but also faith for this. Faith for unity, faith for discipleship, faith, faith for mission. Like, it's all faith. It's not just the beginning. It's the A to Z. It's the faith in the faithfulness of Jesus that, that builds up the church. So he goes on, and uh, he says again, he asks the same question. This is God's character on the line. Did they stumble so far beyond recovery? In other words, it's like Urkel said, did they fall and they can't get up? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Paul has, it's, it's funny, it's like the website domain would be called uh, Ministry of Jealousy. Yeah. He wants the Jews to see the grass greener over there. Right? He wants to not just give a sermon, he wants to give a witness. He wants them to see what they're missing out on. That's his whole point. Phase two exists, well, phase one exists for phase two, and phase two exists for phase three, because he's not aiming at a click, he's aiming at everyone. So if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much more greater riches for their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry, jealousy for zealousy.com. Right? In the hope that I might somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what were their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough is offered as first fruit is, is, is holy, if there's a little bit of a methodical coffee in the corner over there, who's to say there isn't thousands more coming? If the uh, first fruit is, is, is holy, how about the whole batch? Of course it's holy. If the root is holy, don't we know that if the root is healthy, then the branches will just follow, right? Remember my dad used to just bug me, man, and he's, you know, dad, you don't know anything. 
This one time we were in Seattle, I was visiting Uncle Peter. And uh, he was there. He started a karate dojo. I don't think he asked the uh, condo people if he could do that or not, but he just started a karate dojo in the main area. He doesn't have a shirt on. He never did. <laughs> and it was real Mr. Miyagi in there. Like, we didn't even get into the katas. He just had us play tag, and he was like, that's how you do footwork at the end of it. And <laughs> sent him home, you know what I mean? And it's like, sometimes it takes somebody else seeing your dad for who he is for you to honor him the right way. Like, they loved him. Like, you think he's a dork because he's your dad, and you have the disease that you think your dad's a dork. But somewhere out there, there's somebody that thinks he's great, and you would get jealous of him and be like, hey, that's my dad. Stop it. He's my dad, you know? This is the way that he's working. This is the way that he's working because he's sovereign over hearts, and he even uses hardened hearts to soften hearts. That's the crazy thing. That's the crazy thing. Like, there's this portion, like, the first time that they ever talk about the hardening of heart when it comes to... Israel is in this Jeremiah book, and when it talks about the hardening of a heart, it's actually talking about this phase in the pottery uh, sequence where the, the clay starts to become hard, and the potter will add water and work it back into softness again. Like, hardness is not the end of a hardened heart. Until somebody reaches the end of their heartbeat, God is working to soften their heart, and when it says he's hardening hearts, he's really hardening it so they can soften it again. Because the most dangerous thing is actually not an on-fire or a cold Christian, it's a lukewarm one. And he'd rather you have your heart hardened and find the consequences of that, that you might turn to repent before it's too late, than have to wait for the actual hardening. So this is how it works. How long have you been a Christian? Are you surprised today? Let's say you've been a Christian for 20 years. Haven't you been surprised of the hardened hearts in your life that you've seen that have been softened over these 20 years? and the people that were on fire for Jesus that are cold for him now? Isn't that crazy? How God will mix and match our anticipation of what we think is a hard heart and what we think is a soft heart and what we think is hardening somebody's heart and what we think is softening his heart is completely opposite. Like, I'm glad that God is the one that's overseeing hearts and not me. I've seen kids go off to college and hear about fancy philosophies in school, but really they sleep with their boyfriend and their heart gets hard because they feel lonely, and they think it's about theology and doctrine, but it's about offense and unforgiveness. And their heart gets hard for a season that they might repent. I've seen people that are eights on the Enneagram, you know, real tough guys. They're real tough. Dang you, God, I'm never going to listen to you. You know they're teddy bears on the inside. Something happens with their daughter, something happens with their, their wife, something happens with their health. And they melt in God's hands. Because that, that's what God does. I've seen pastors, they're on fire, they're leading the nations. They forget their home, forget their soul. They get isolated, they trust themselves more in the spirit, and they fall down. This is the message. Is that God is sovereign over hearts. And he uses all of our stumbling, all of our foolishness, outside the church and in this place, to be humble. He's a pro-humble God, you see? He's not a, I like to smother in your face and make you stumble because I'm going to get you. He wants to, he wants to provoke you. Jealousy, and you know in the Hebrew, you know the word jealousy is the same word as zealous. Jealousy, zealousy.com. That's Paul's ministry. He wants to use every hardened heart to stumble soon so we, get, so we can humble now, not later. And so this is the idea. A church that's based on works will just say, oh, that person's such a jerk. They don't know Jesus, and they'll never know Jesus. 
You think God turned Saddam Hussein into Billy Graham in the first century of the church? Is concerned about whose heart you think is hard? Maybe your heart's harder than you think that it is. And this is the way that God works, is that he, he calls what we think is wise as foolish, and he uses even the hardened, hardened hearts around us to teach us the circumstances so that we don't have to harden our own hearts and we'll be humble. This is how God continually works out his sovereignty. I'm glad that we're not in charge. I'm glad that he's in charge. And so by faith, we just say, never say never. Never say never. Like, if Paul, if the first prototype of the leader of the Christian church is killing Christians five days before he becomes a Christian, who are you saying never to? Whose heart is too hard? Whose heart is not worth praying for? Whose heart is, is worth causing them to stumble more based on your arrogance and judgment? Pray for them. This is what we're called to do. This is him. This is what he does. It's built on faith and not works. Lastly, if some of the branches have been broken off, this is the picture. He zooms out and he gives you this, this picture. I actually got one of an olive tree. This is what he's talking about. And you, though, a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in. You can even, like, cut a little splinter and, like, get the, get the olive branch in there and tape it in. And even different breeds, this is so cool, like, even different breeds of olives can thrive and grow as they're grafted into a foreign olive shoot, a multicolored, multi-species olive tree that's created by the grafting in of some gardening hand. Among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. And if you do, consider this. Hey, man, know your spot. Know your lane. You don't support the root. The root supports you. You're, just, you're, you're not the root. You're the shoot. And you don't support the root. God was here before you got here. He's here when you're gone. And by that, so is the church. So you are, a, you are a shoot. No matter how tall you are, old you are, you're just a shoot. And you're supported by something that you didn't make. And so you're not the root. You're, you're just the shoot. And the root supports you, verse 19. And you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Yeah, for sure. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And what will happen to you if that happens, right? If they stumbled, who's to say you can't stumble? Everybody's stumbling. You should see stumbling, and it should make you humble. Don't cause somebody else to stumble to make you stumble. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. This is, this is the word that he chooses. Hey, church, you really see the full picture of what the church is and the age and the age to come and all that God did for it in Christ. Here's the response you should have. Trembling, trembling over the holiness and majesty and joy and love that he has filling up in a place called the church. This ain't your church. This is his church. And it should make you tremble to think of the power that he has to have 3 billion people come out of that 12-person movement way back in, in, the, in the days of the empty tomb. Do not be arrogant, be trembling. 3.2 billion people in the earth. For if God did not spare the natural branches, do you think he's going to spare you? So that's the picture. I love Charlie Boyd over at Fellowship. He says, the covenant that we exist in doesn't put us in a new tree, it puts us in a Jew tree. I like that. There's a lot of, you know, even movements right now, that's like, let's get rid of the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. All we need is Jesus. Jesus. There is no Jesus. You know, Jesus was Jewish. A Christian anti-Semite is an oxymoron. For the record, the one you follow is Jewish. <laughs> and the spirit that's in you has circumcised your heart. And you don't need kosher, but it is making you holy. It's setting you apart. And you don't practice the Sabbath necessarily every day as a law, but you have Sabbath rest in him. And so we shouldn't have any arrogance about this thing. We should tremble. We should tremble about the fact that we were a lost branch dying on the vine or off the vine 
And we've been gently and humbly and lovingly taped and grafted back in. Then we want to be a multicolored, multifaceted, multilingual, ethnic, generational, gifted church. Because it's not your church, it's his. So this is the feeling we should have when we think about going to church on Sunday. Consider the kindness and the sternness of God. Consider what it took to get here, the blood of the martyrs and Christ, and the tithes and the offerings of the people around you, and the committedness of the volunteers, and, and all the things that it takes that are all animated, animated by the Holy Spirit. People aren't doing this because this is fun. They're doing it because God, God called them to do it, and you should do what God's calling you to do as well. This is how we should look at the church. This is not a break from the week. This is a chance to strengthen and nourish and nurture branches so they don't fall off and stumble. That's what we're here for. It's the kindness of God on one side of the coin, provided that you continue in his kindness, not arrogance. Otherwise, you won't be cut off. And if they do not uh, persist in unbelief, then it will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree by wild nature, contrary to nature, and grafted into cultivated olive tree, how much more ready will these, the natural branches, be to be grafted in to their own olive tree? And so uh, my, my, uh, my dear in-laws, Ashley and Will, over here, represent the Cretella How about a hand for the Cretella fam? Come on, over here. You get, you get married, and there's this crazy thing. Like, because Kyra chose me to be married to when we were 21, they had to choose me. Unfortunately, they had to. I mean, y'all have in-laws? I mean, every Christmas. I mean, we're talking about the sacred spaces, right, of vacations, the Audi TT on the honeymoon from Mr. C., I'm treated like a son because I was chosen by the daughter. I'm grafted in. They didn't choose me. Kyra chose me, and now they have to choose me. <laughs> and I get the feeling of what it feels like to benefit from what somebody else paid for, to be invited in just because of choice, not because of favoritism, right? We've uh, had a lot of great times growing up, me and Kyra, over the years, and um, have a lot of just generous people in our lives. Have you ever found yourself in some mansion that you can't afford, driving some car that you couldn't afford, in some boat that you would never be able to buy, and you just pinch yourself and say, how did I get here? This is the kind of idea of the inheritance of heaven that we're talking about, is we are sitting here with the nourishing sap of things that cost people blood because we've been grafted in. I think about even this church, you know? I came here in 2016. I was a youth pastor. I was an associate pastor. I didn't start. I wasn't part of this church. There are people here that were here for longer than I've been here. That's usually not how the whole pastor thing goes, right? But it is a sober moment and a sobering thing for me to realize that this church was started and will go on without me. This is not my church. You know, I try to write and read, but it's the idea. Like the content that I'm presenting every Sunday is not my content, right? Don't call me John Mark McMillan. Like, I didn't write this, you know? I, I, it's like, you have to know your lane. Like, this isn't my church. It's not your church. And there's something healthy when you realize you've been grafted into something that was, that was started before you got here to last longer than, than you're here. It's because you're, you're here because of the people. You know that, right? Because of the gifts around you. You wouldn't be here. You're not a self-made woman or man. You're here because of brothers and sisters, and you'd be dead on the vine without them, right? This is the deal, is that, is that we have been grafted in. We didn't build this thing. We've been brought into this thing, and we're grafted in. And not only that, here's the startling sternness side of it is, is that you're ticked about the unhumble, arrogant person around you and their hard-heartedness, but God's saying that he actually used them to humble you. So you're not only here because of soft-hearted people, you're here because of hard-hearted people. And God somehow in his plan and wisdom decided to make a hard-hearted person teach you consequences so you didn't have to learn them on your own. 
and you're halfway here because you grew up with a hard-hearted dad so that you can know Jesus and you should stop blaming him and honor him because God apparently used him to bless you in your life somehow through his evil. I don't know how to do this, but it's faith, not works. We're not here for my opinions, for my comfort, my glory, right? That's not what church is about. This is about him. This is his church. It's for his truth. I don't, the church doesn't exist for me. Here's the thing. If you're church shopping, this is the question you should ask yourself. Oh my gosh, I love the smoke and the lights or what, you know. I just had goosebumps. It's like, here's the thing. Go to a church that makes you better for your neighbor in the gospel. Go pick a church. Just ask yourself, where's the church that makes me most comfortably uncomfortable that it's getting me better for my neighbor? Ask my neighbor which church I should go to, right? <laughs> That's what this is about. If the church does not exist for me. I exist for the church. Church exists for the world. I've not been chosen because I'm better. I'm chosen because I'm blessed. Then I might not freak out have enough faith to be the few in the corner to see the many, and many would have inheritance based on his kindness and his richness. So, so this is the fear and the trepidation that we need to approach the church with. And so it all comes down to his reputation. Like, like when you go date somebody, you want to find out how they treat their mom, but also find out how they treat their friends. And here's another one for free. Find out how they treat your enemies because <laughs> they're going to get mad at you at some point, and you're going to figure out what the other side of that coin is going to feel like. <laughs> and so here's what, here's what he's trying to say. Hey, man, if I've been faithful to these Stubborn-hearted Jews, what do you think that means for you? Like, if I've never been unfaithful to anyone, how am I going to stop being faithful to you? The one without the covenant, the one that wasn't chosen. Of course I'm going to be faithful to you. So there is a future for natural, physical, David flag, Israel. I believe that's true. Verse 25, I'm going to read it right through, and we're going to close on this doxology. There's a big, Paul whew, puts a pen down. He's been writing for us. If he was here, we'd just give him a big round of applause. It is just the most unbelievable letter ever, right? But this is the end of the... Theological part, he gets into the practical part, but this is the doxology. This is the part where you just sail off for a minute and just pull the car over and you're just like, what in the heck? Like, how did you do this? How did you do this? Okay, verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you won't be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Phase one led to phase two, phase two leads to phase three. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn goodness away from Jacob, godlessness, excuse me. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, when it comes to Jewish people, they're enemies for your sake in the gospel. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call, they're irrevocable. God never says something that he doesn't fulfill. That's it. That's the, that's the, that's the whole story. Verse 30, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have become disobedient in order that you too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy for you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience. He's hardened everybody's heart so that he can soften it so they can have mercy. And here's the doxology. Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. One of the greatest puzzles is a fallen world that's utterly divided. And you put any person even on the president's seat and see what happens, let alone God on the throne. And somehow in his wisdom, he has 3.5 billion people walking out, at least claiming to be walking out in the church. And this is what he says. So after all that, are you going to counsel God? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? After all that, you think that you're going to sing a song that's so great and write a song that's so great that you're going to bend heaven a different direction than it's already going? 
No. You can't give anything to God as if he needs to repay you. For from him and through him and for him, all these things were made for his glory. Amen and amen. Amen? So as we close down uh, Romans chapter uh, 11 and get into the more practical side, uh, Romans is uh, speaking to us over these last chapters that uh, the family is just as much a miracle as heaven is, and therefore it needs to be accessed by faith. I had three people come to me today, or this week, you know, when they say, how are you doing, and they actually mean it? That's a good thing. I want to challenge you and dare you to do that, because in the current of isolation and pride and the spirit of just loneliness, it would just take one person with faith to say, I care about you more than profit. I'm going I'm I'm to command... I'm going to command my body as a, as a living sacrifice, as an instrument of righteousness, to not serve money over God. And I'm going to choose you. He chose me, and so I'm choosing you. And that simple faith, Paul is saying, it's not just a strategy for heaven. It's a miracle in heaven. It's, it's like, how do we prove? This is how Jesus, the greatest apologetic in John chapter 17, says that we know that he's resurrected. Because the nations are getting along. How did that happen? If the vision for family is a picket fence with four kids, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those that were cursed and scattered at Babel are gathered in the Holy Spirit again. Why? Because the tomb is empty. This is the logic. If you point to any of these past the theology parts, Ephesians 4, you know, Romans 12, where we're at, like, this isn't a strategy, this is a declaration of not just what we do, it's who we are. We are the family. If we cannot be separated from, from God by sin or suffering or anything else, then either can race, racism or prejudice or pride or hard-heartedness or any of these things keep us from one another because we are united in faith, not because of what we do, because of what, what Jesus does. And so, in closing, uh, maybe consider, uh, as, you, as you walk out faith this week, the three different... Um, phrases that we gather from Paul's letter here in Romans, Romans chapter 11. Do I, res- do I respect the popularity of the many in place of the faithfulness of the few? Am I impressed with popularity? Am I impressed with numbers? Do I allow my obedience to follow um, uh, peer pressure? What the natives are doing, like what the locals are like? Am I, is my obedience based on the things I see around me or the word of God? Secondly, is there any stumbling in my heart or the stumbling in those around me that is leading to more stumbling rather than humbling? Because the purpose in the hands of God in the hearts of the church is to, is to allow for stumbling to happen that humbling might, might, might occur. And lastly, as I consider the places that I do life and, and ministry and the places that I follow Jesus with, the people beside me, do they belong to me or do they belong to God? Am I the root or am I the branch? These are some of the foundational things, I think, when it says what a family is and how a family operates. A family in faith is based on faith, not works. It's that that he is building up the church and not me. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.